Hi, I'm Nicole Carr, Head of Linklater's UK and Dublin Antitrust and Foreign Investment Group. This is the first episode in our new Linklater's Global Foreign Investment podcast series. Throughout this series, Linklater's lawyers from across our offices will be joined by speakers from regulators around the globe to bring the view from across the table on topical issues, interesting quirks of the regimes, and insights into what to expect of reviews in their particular jurisdiction. If you've got any thoughts or queries on the content of these podcasts, please do get in contact with a member of our global antitrust and foreign investment team to discuss how we can assist you and your organisations. Today I'm really pleased to be in the booth with Chris Blairs, Deputy Director, and Andy Omrod-Cloak, Head of Policy at Bayes' Investment Security Unit, to discuss the new National Security and Investment Act and how it's likely to operate in practice, ahead of it fully commencing on the 4th of January 2022. So maybe we can start um, both with a a deep dive into the Investment Security Unit, um, the ISU as we've been calling it. Can you let us know current status, is it, is it operational um, within Bayes and a bit of a sense of size if that's possible? Great. Nicole, thanks um, and thanks for inviting us. It's a, it's, a, it's a really great opportunity to talk to you about the ISU. It's a, it's a really exciting time as we, as we get ready for the, for the 4th of January, which is, which is dangerously close, it, it, seems, it seems to all of us. So yes, I mean, um, we've been in place for quite some time. We've been building the team during the course of the year. We started off with a relatively small team at the start of the year and have been recruiting, as you would expect, at speed and quite heavily to get ready for the end of the year. So yes, very much uh, a team that is, that is there is, is raring to go. And as, as you know, we've been talking to uh, companies and, and investors um, about, in some cases, real real live transactions, but also when people have had questions that they wanted to run past. So yes, very, mu- very much there and ready to go. Perfect. And do you expect, Chris, that, I mean, is there a plan that over time, as, as you get a better sense of notifications, you might scale the, the ISU up further? Is, is that part of the plan? Yeah, I mean we've got we've got a, a good sized team which we based on on the on the projections we've done on the on the caseload. Um, obviously, we want to see what the what, you know what the actual volumes are as they, as they come through, and you know we can draw on expertise across Whitehall for for individual cases, and of course within the department, you know when there's a particular pressure, you can draw on your on your colleagues. We've got um, very well established contingency arrangements for drawing people in. So yes, we can, we can flex as the as the volumes change. Understood. Um, I, I wondered a little bit about um, case allocation and how you were planning planning to do things operationally. And I guess I should say this podcast is unashamedly operational in the sense that, you know, I think the ISU and Bayes generally has been incredibly generous in expand, explaining to companies how the, the legislation is going to um, be operated. But this is more, I think, about the people on the ground and how cases will be managed and how companies should make filings. So, I mean, with that spirit, I mean, how have you thought about cases being allocated with the ISU? Will people have specialisms within the ISU? So, for example, a team will always handle defence and MOD interface. Is, is that the intention? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not going to give you all the internal wiring of the, of the, of the department. I mean, you, you wouldn't expect me to. But I think... I think it's 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 worth bearing in mind this is this is not like the Enterprise Act where you where you need some of that sort of formal division between the phase one and the phase two um, responsibilities. So it's a slightly more flexible model than that. And the ISU, the, the Investment Security Unit, will be very much the the hub that sits at the at the heart of government running these cases and then drawing on the sort of spokes from across Whitehall for for specialist expertise or the, the security assessments. Mm-hmm. Within the ISU itself um, you know, we, we will have a sort of handover mechanism as, as, as cases move through the system. I think it'll be more of a sort of generic model than, than specialist caseworkers, okay. because as I say, the, 
the specialist role comes from you know those specialist people within the department or, or across Whitehall. That's 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 the kind of model we'll run. Understood. And so, have those departmental spokes um, been established? Are they being formed in the process of being formed? So, I, I guess you know the key departments are probably, I mean, MOD. Um, depending on what it is, you know, uh, I suppose, you know, DCMS, um, I mean, there's a host probably of relevant departments. Yeah, so, so rather like Bayes, actually, most of those, most of those departments obviously had a, had a history in these kinds of cases anyway. Yeah. Uh, and they had um, standing teams on, on national security cases. So they've be, been expanding at the same time. Uh, so so they, they are ready and in place for us to draw on. And then obviously within, within Bayes itself, You've got sector teams which cover particular parts of the economy. So you've got you've got pockets of expertise both within within Bayes, but also across across Whitehall. So yes, those, those have been expanded where they where they existed already, mm-hmm. and where they where they didn't exist, they they've been built. Understood. Um, I guess a question about um, you mentioned the CMA, Chris, and mm. it's a bit of a different setup, obviously, to a, a kind of first review, second review. Has the ISU got anything within it that's similar to the CMA's market monitoring? type function where you're scanning papers and drawing in other sources of intelligence to check whether deals have been notified? Yes, I mean, we've, we've got a market monitoring function. We don't have, we don't have a, a, a committee in the way that the CMA does. But yes, we, we've, had, we've had quite a long-standing market monitoring function, which we've been building and expanding during this year. Um, and that obviously draws on open source information and commercially available data. Uh, and that's, that's essential for us really because of the way the Act has that ability to call in transactions, yeah. the transactions that aren't notified. So yes, we do, we do have that capability. Um, and it's, it's, I think, significantly developed compared to where it was some time ago. So yes, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a good capability, but not a formal committee. Understood. That's really helpful to know. Um, uh, also, I, I guess one of the eye-catching aspects of, of the new legislation was the impact assessment, unusually, uh, which doesn't usually get a lot of a read, but you know, was, was poured over by lawyers. And I think one thing that people really focused on was the projections um, of between 1,000 and 1,830, which is a stunningly precise uh, number, for, of transactions being reviewed a year, um, with 70 to 90 in a detailed review and around 10 requiring remedies, which could involve also prohibitions. Um, I guess you've had a bit of a sense of what, via briefing papers, the throughput might look like. It's a very, I think, poor proxy, but, you know, a bit of a sense. And I wondered if those estimates had changed at all, um, because I I guess you're scaling capability and capacity to to throughput. Yes. no, I mean we've we've not changed those estimates, and you know we've 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 thought about it and whether whether they whether they need review. But you know at this stage, to to be frank, no one really knows what the volumes are going to be yeah. um, on the fourth of January and and in weeks and months afterwards. And of course, you know even if the volumes are high at the start, you may well see those those tail off over time. But no, no re- no reason I think at this stage to to change those those estimates. And I think as well, although the act is is fundamentally different to the Enterprise Act. At the heart of it, some things are constant. You still have a definition of national security, which is the same, essentially, as in the Enterprise Act. Mm -hmm. And the government's risk appetite fundamentally hasn't changed. What you've got is a a different statutory mechanism. So I think, you know, let's see what happens. Um, But at this stage, no no reason to to change those estimates in the the impact assessment. Yeah, I I thought I'd just um, add that the government has published the, its impact assessment which sets out its figures. It also sets out its methodology. Mm-hmm. All those that have commented on the cases and notifications that they see arising haven't published their methodology. So what we've got are briefing papers, 
often from very experienced firms, um, but without the ability to test really the assumptions that they've come to. So I just say that we've we've really thought through and then sought to publish so that people can, as they did during passage of the legislation, um, scrutinise the judgments that we've um, that we've come to. Understood. Um, so I, I guess a, a question on. Um a point you made actually, Chris, about um, access to experts and expertise within pockets of Bayes and, and beyond. Um, I, I guess the, the, a question then about some of the more um, rarefied elements of the 17 sectors, which um, you know I, I, do, I do think possibly you may need a degree in quantum technology to understand exactly what is um, envisaged there for a humble lawyer kind of trying to advise on it. Are you able to draw on external expertise where needed, or is there sector expertise within the ISU or elsewhere that you know will have the insights into some of these really quite specialised areas of technology? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I think two things on that. One, when we were drawing up the definitions themselves, obviously they went out through a lot of consultation and a lot of involvement with with experts out in out in the, the real world, if I can call it that. Within within government itself, you know, we have. Um, that level of expertise within the department and elsewhere to be able to look at those definitions, look at them against transactions as well. Yep. So, so there is th there is that ability. Um, I mean, as you say, they are complicated definitions in in some of those sectors, and it, it's interesting in some of, in some conversations we've had on those definitions, people have said, but these these definitions are, are too broad, and. You know, it's one of those things where, in a sense, you're, you're damned if you do and you, you're damned if you yeah. don't. You have to give detail because these fields are so complicated. But then the detail looks really quite quite complex and hard to work with. So, so yes, I mean, they, they, are, they are lengthy definitions, but that gives you precision, uh, I think, to work with. And we have got that expertise to be able to draw in. Uh, and, you know, we can, if need be, um, you know, talk to people in, in, in the outside world through our expert panel and see how this is working. We've also said as well, that um, after six months we'll issue market guidance on how the system is working. That will, that will give, us, give us a sense and give the world outside a sense of you know, what have we seen? Mm. How is this thing actually operating? Because it is, it is an unknown quantity for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's also worth saying that Parliament, um, as I'm sure you're aware, Nicole, re reviews secondary legislation subject to the affirmative procedure, i.e. the definitions of the sector subject to mandatory prior to prior to them being debated, and these passed one of the tests that they uh, have, which is can parties self-identify through reviewing um, the regulation. So I agree that they are on the more technical um, end, um, but they have at least secured the, the confidence of people that, that review the legislation. So hopefully that's some, some reassurance. Great. Thank you, Andy. Um, I, I think maybe if we slightly switch gear then, maybe out of the operational aspects of the ISU and more into... Um, very selfishly, um, how we get our filings in on the 4th of January. So blurry-eyed, we stumble into the kitchen uh, or possibly into the office on the 4th of January after our, our holiday and, and try and submit forms on, uh, via the online system. Is there anything you can tell us about testing, trialling, um, and, and will the computer just be saying no on, on 4th of January? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Very, very good question. Um, so look, we, we are, as you'd expect, at this stage in the year in the, the advanced um, testing of the system. And in fact, at the moment, we're, we're doing that final testing stage uh, with businesses uh, before we switch the system on. Um, and that's really to give people the chance to to submit sample notifications with, with fictitious data um, through that online portal so we can get a sense of, of how usable it is. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, 
if Linklaters would like to be part of that, very happy to include, to include you on that list. Um, my view is the more people that test this, the better. So yes, advanced uh, testing, uh, as you would expect, so that when we switch it on on the 4th of January, it will work. Perfect. Um, I guess a couple of quite nerdy questions, and apologies for these, but I do think we're, we're kind of getting people, um, trying to encourage them to get the house in order um, uh, before the 4th of January. So, you know, I, I think the expert guidance um, group um, I'm a part of has seen a couple of the guides to making submissions, which have been exceptionally helpful, actually really practical, um, which is really very much appreciated. Um, in terms of like template filings and template forms, do you have a sense of of publishing those before the fourth, or um, I guess a, a beta version of the, or a prototype version of the, the filing template? Sure, so I, I think if I break this up in a, in a couple of ways. So, so when, it, when it comes to notifying from the fourth of January, it is through the, the online portal. So it's, although, although there will be published forms, um, those in a sense are a backup. The, the, the route to notification is, is through the online portal. Yeah. We should be publishing those, uh, the versions of the, the forms and the guidance uh, probably in the middle of December, I would, I would okay. expect. Um, I think if people are anxious now to, to start preparing that information, um, the statutory instrument that we, that we uh, did a few weeks ago uh, sets out all the categories of information that, that, are, that are required. So that gives you the kinds of fields to work from. Yep. What you haven't got yet is, is the portal, but the fields are all there in the, in the SI. So if people want to sort of get ready for the 4th of January, they, they, they can do. Yeah, understood. So quite a technical question, sorry Chris, but one question we have been asked um, frequently actually from uh, more fund um, clients, private equity, financial sponsors, sovereign backed funds, is how the, I think, really quite helpful guidance um, available on the information requirements and the fields that need to be filled in might apply to fund investors and in particular to LP investors. Um, we can see from the, the helpful guidance that, um, that Bayes has put out already on um, uh, acquirers that corporates need to give details of their shareholders with stakes above five percent but that won't really be practical for you know potentially LPs that have thousands of investors within them so any guidance you can give on how uh, the IC was thinking about that element would be really very welcome. Mm, thanks Nicole. I mean it's it's a really interesting question I mean obviously what the Act is trying to get at is is acquisition of, of control and as you say there are lots of different kind of corporate structures and what we don't want to do is to create such a heavy burden on investors that you're having to having to disclose absolutely everything. So using the particular example you've, you've given about LP investors, obviously what we're really interested in is, is the details on the general partners. Oh, yeah. um, the LP investors, to some extent, yes, because obviously what you want to avoid is people using that kind of corporate vehicle as a way of, of, of subverting or, or avoiding the legislation. And as you say, as we've, as we've said in the guidance, we've, we've steered people towards details of uh, share ownership or voting rights of 5% or more to give a sense of a kind of threshold. Um, but obviously, if, if companies or advisors are uncertain, come talk to us uh, and you know, have, have that conversation about the kind of information. And ultimately, if we feel we haven't got the information we need, the Act gives us the power to come and ask you for it. So you know, it's, be it's better to have a dialogue rather than do this in the dark, I think. Understood. That's really, really helpful. We don't want to break, uh, break the uh, internet on day one, uh, for sure. Um, so I guess uh, a couple of questions maybe on, on some of the maybe more um, unique aspects of the NSIA relative to some of the other pieces of legislation we have, um, and that I think particularly competition advisors would be very familiar with in the UK. 
Um, there is provision in the um, legislation, I think also the guidance documents, for the ISU to issue attendance notices and ask um, uh, people along to provide information. Um, can you perhaps give us a bit of a sense of, of how that might be useful um, to the ICU in gathering information and, and whether or not um, you, know, you might be prepared to have virtual meetings to give a maximum amount of time, et cetera, so the clock isn't stopped um, when someone is asked to attend, but perhaps diary um, and other commitments prevent them yes. immediately. Yeah, yeah no, it's, it's, it is one of the striking features of the Act because obviously so much, so much of the Act is a kind of process and it ver feels very different, I think, to the way that M&A um, lawyers will be used to, yes, to dealing with, with yeah. the Enterprise Act and the, and the CMA and, and other bodies as well. So, you know, it, it, it is that opportunity, I think, um, for people to, to set out their case, or, or the Secretary of State to call people in and say, I, I need to understand this case more in, in, and in more depth. Um, and you know, we can use that to obviously you know, set, sort of set out the, the time and place of the meeting and the, and the purpose and the, and the people who need to attend. Um, the Act doesn't say it has to be a physical meeting. It just sort of says you have to, do, have to set out the, 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 the time and place of it. So I imagine it gives us the flexibility to, to do that online. It would be bizarre if it didn't. Yeah. Um, and of course, it stops the clock um, during, during that, that period. Um, so it, it is a helpful way just to sort of pause, gather breath, uh, and, and, and hear more detail about, about the cases. Particularly, I think, this act has quite brisk timescales attached to it. Yes. And, if you, and if you're in, in a very complex transaction and very complex national security issues, it would be advisable sometimes, I think, just to use the time and use the breathing space that the act gives you, whether it's an attendance notice or that ability to, to extend the timetable, just to be sure you're getting this right. Yep. Because you know, when you're putting in place a final order, you know that that is that is the point at which you're 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 making that decision. So it's these are important safety valves, I think. Yeah, I'm, I understood. That's can, very helpful. Can I just check, Nicole? It, it feels like the 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 worry behind that question is that there might may a may be created a significant delay by an attendance notice. Yes. Yeah. I, I think t two points potentially of reassurance. So one is that, as Chris says, the the Act says the Secretary of State may um, specify the time and place as part of a a notice. Um, I think the, the second point is that there is a big incentive for the government to progress notifications at a good rate. Mm -hmm. So we spoke earlier about the level of notifications. Yeah. The government wants to uh, review these and clear those, particularly those where no national security risks are thought to arise, as quickly as it can. Mm -hmm. There is a great incentive for us to process these, demonstrate they're being processed, uh, and not take undue time uh, where it's not required. So I think that I often say when speaking to businesses uh, is that um, the incentives are all correct in the Act for the government to work with business and not create delays where they're not otherwise needed. I think that's really, really reassuring. Thank you. Um, I, I guess one other area of um, interest uh, that clients have expressed is around information. And I think there's a couple of dimensions to that. I mean, the um, filing uh, requirements do ask for details of previous notifications made to foreign investment um, uh, bodies. They ask also about any other engagement the M&A parties are having with uh, other UK regulators. And, and I, I guess a question there about um, whether the ICU will be requiring waivers from parties to have discussions with other bodies, whether they're in the UK or outside of the UK? Yeah, so I think a couple of things on, on information. I think um, 
I, I just like to sort of put your 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 mind of rest on on, on the sort of information security point first of all. I mean, Bayes is a department that's used to handling commercially sensitive information, as as, as you know, um, and the way that we have built the ISU, uh, you know, we without going into the details, you know, we, we we have ensured that the that the data will be handled securely and that the staff will have the right kind of security clearances to be able to handle it. Um, Obviously, you know, there's there's sensitivity about um, the commercially sensitive information and and, and containing that yeah. from from parties. Um, and as you say, there there may well be cases where where we need to seek waivers from from parties in order to to move the proceeding on. Um, that I think you know will will come with time as we get used to, to handling these cases. Um, but I mean, just just to reassure you on that on those points about the, about the security of this. Right. Thank you. Um, and, and I guess one other um, question on information actually from the other direction is uh, when clients are required to make announcements to the market, um, for example, a party's publicly listed, um, will they or should they be um, liaising with the ISU about that? Because I, I think if I read the guidance correctly, the ISU will not be indicating it's reviewing a transaction or that it has received a, a filing. It's only when it takes mitigating steps um, that those will be published. So there, there is some confidentiality around the, the process of review, but, but parties themselves may, may be obliged to make announcements. So, so I mean, I, any thoughts you had on, on how you see that that would be very useful? Yes, I mean, the Act, the Act is quite different, I think, to the Enterprise Act. I mean, and you, you know the way that in the Enterprise Act, um, public interest interventions were, were played out very publicly, whereas the, the NSI Act takes quite a lot of the process internally and takes, takes some of the the drama out of it. So the, the very public bits in the NSI Act are, are right at the end with, with, with final orders and final notices. Um, obviously companies will have their own obligations to the market and will we'll, we'll, uh, um, fulfil those and issue RNSs when they need to. Um, we're not, I think, planning to, to use the RNS system ourselves okay. um, for announcements. We, we, we didn't under the Enterprise Act. What we always did was contact the parties in good time to tell them what was happening um, when announcements were being made so that they would know what was coming and we always respected the the, the, the closing times for the markets. Yep. But no, we won't be using the RNS system, we'll probably be using the, the gov.uk way of, of announcing things. But um, nothing should come as a surprise uh, to parties during, during a case uh, in the way that we work the Act. Um, and that's you know the way we work the Enterprise Act cases as well. So no RNSs, but but no surprises. Great, perfect. And I might, um, in a very unfair journalistic way, might bank that no surprises into my next question and, and ask, um, in the process of remedies or mitigation, I think one thing that has been you know I've noticed in recent cases I've been involved with, actually the department is very good I think at signalling where its concerns lie and what might be needed to fix those. So it's not this slightly black box situation you can have with some other regulators where you feel like you're betting into a, um, a you know, you're betting against the house, the house always wins and you're kind of in a bit of a, the, the dark about what it would take to overcome concerns. So I think that's always been a, a strength of the current system. Um, if the government, uh, or sorry, the, the ISU based the minister is intending to require mitigation, how do you see that process unfolding? Is that something, you mentioned no surprises, is that something that will be warmed um, up in terms of the parties and, and um, proposals made from, from the ICU side or, or how do, is it a two-way discussion? Thanks. I mean, yes, I mean there is, a, there is a, 
There is a sort of fundamental difference, isn't there, compared to the Enterprise Act, where at the end of phase one, you're, you're offering undertakings in lieu of referral to phase two. So yeah. there, there is a kind of gearing and a, and, a, and a kind of motivation. The NSI Act takes that away. What you, what you have is call in and you go straight through to, to a potentially a, a final order. Um, but I think what, what you will see is a, is a process of of discussion with parties about about what the content of a final order should be. If you think about it, you know the government will have a reason for calling in. It will have done a national security assessment. It will know what the risk is, what the problem is. It is yeah. trying to mitigate. So you need to be thinking through what are the appropriate and proportionate remedies to put in place. But you need those to make sense. You need them ideally to be remedies that the that the companies can work with, otherwise you just set up a compliance and enforcement problem for yourself. Yeah. Um, so yes, very much a kind of discussion approach, but without that kind of, without the sort of peculiar dynamics of the Enterprise Act, the kind of you know referral to phase two or not question, but yes, very much a discussion, I think. Understood, I think that'll be very reassuring for, for people to hear. Um, and I wondered to what extent thinking had been done on mitigation steps and remedies, because um, I mean, obviously, in the defence um, environment, there's a pretty well-trodden path. I think people understand what is necessary. There's a body of law that's developed, law practice that's developed over time. But I, I suppose the, the, the really unique feature of the NSIA is how it applies across the whole economy and into areas, I suppose, that have never really been uh, the subject of remedies or mitigation in the past. Is there a a, a template within the department? Is there um, a, a handbook of uh, appropriate mitigation steps that, that you're working on? Um, well, it, it's interesting. As, as, I was, as I was saying uh, a few moments ago, I mean, you're, you're looking at the national security risk in a particular case. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's as true for this legislation as it is for any other case working system. You look at every case on a case-by-case -case basis. So you have your, your assessment of national security risk and you're building for building your mitigations or your remedies for that case. So no, there, is, there isn't a kind of a handbook or a, or a menu or, or a standard uh, set of remedies. And in fact, the Act doesn't give you anything on that. It simply says a final order and the Secretary of State um, can put the content of that order. But of course, you know, if you look at some of the past national security cases, we have we have put in place some structural remedies in some cases. Some of those can be sort of physical things about access to parts of sites, or they've been sort of more corporate, sort of corporate governance structural arrangements. And of course, you can, if you need to, um, move to the to the top end of the remedies and ultimately block or unwind a transaction. But no, what you don't do is you don't approach with a with a standard list. What you do is you tailor them. You tailor them to the case. You tailor them to the national security risk. And you, and you cover your national security risks so you're sure that they're necessary and proportionate. Because at the heart of it, the Act is for national security. It is not for anything else. So your remedies are to address the national security risk that you've identified. And that, those are the powers that the Act gives you. And when you've remedied that, you stop. Understood. So no remedies playbook concealed somewhere that we should all be No, no, not, and you know, you, what you will have over time obviously is, is, is case and precedent yeah. and procedure, but, but not a remedies case book. You, you, you look, you know, when you, when you see a case, um, they're, they're all different to each other, you know, and sometimes you're grappling with, you know, how do you protect this part of a particular site yeah. com compared to, is there something about the, the structure of the board? And, and, you, and you look at the particular risks in every case, and that's what you're trying to remedy. Understood. That's really helpful. 
Um, I think you've been incredibly generous with your time. Uh, I wondered though, before we have go live on the, the 4th of January, whether you have any top tips for, for clients um, who might be thinking about how best to prepare themselves ahead of go live date. Yes, good, good question. So I always say to, to people about the NSI Act, um, if, you, if you understand one part of it, understand the mandatory notification part mm -hmm. uh, and how that works, how the, how the definitions of the 17 sectors work and understand the consequences of, of getting the mandatory notification part wrong. Secondly, I think really understand the way that mandatory interacts with descriptions of, of control and the acquisition of control. What are, what are, those, what are those triggers about um, shares and voting rights and resolutions of, of the company? I think some practical points, come and talk to us if you're unsure. Um, if you're thinking about notifications, you need to get ready for the 4th of January. As I say, the, the statutory instrument is out there. It gives you the fields. It tells you the kind of information that, that, that we will need. And then I think ultimately, don't be afraid of the legislation. One, it is, it is new and uncertain. It is not changing our risk appetite on national security. It's not changing our approach to investment. It is very familiar and very similar to the regimes you see in lots of countries, the, the US for example. Um, and at the heart of it, it is limited to defined categories of acquisitions in particular circumstances and focused on national security. So it's a, it's a very targeted piece of, piece of legislation. Um, but yes, ultimately, come and talk to us. Great. I thought I might add to that if I, um, if I might. Um, uh, so um, I would add to what Chris has said with um, the vast majority, and as we've said publicly, the vast majority of acquisitions are unaffected by the NSI Act, not, not least because of the thresholds of control being at particular points. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of acquisitions um, unaffected. Those that are affected, the vast majority of those will not be called in. And we think there are some clear steps that we have sought to navigate external parties through in the way that we have published our legislation and our guidance. So we, in particular, have published the ordering as the primary legislation, the secondary legislation and the guidance. Yep. And ministers committed to Parliament that the guidance would aid parties in understanding how to comply. And my team, our team, have spent a lot of energy, including with the help of yourself and the expert panel, in ensuring that guidance is crystal clear. So I would say, read the guidance, it really does do the, do the job. Um, the second thing that I'd um, add is the Section 3 statement. Mm -hmm. um, there are, in particular in relation to assets, but also voluntary notifications, we have had lots of questions as to when should I notify? And I realise the Section 3 statement is called something which doesn't seem to make sense to anyone who um, perhaps isn't a lawyer or perhaps doesn't work for government. But the statement is deliberate and specific about where the government expects to use the call-in power. And so I'd really encourage parties to take care to read it and note that it includes things like assets which fall outside of sectors otherwise subject to mandatory notification are much less likely to be of interest to the Secretary of State. So we have sought to be crystal clear on where we see, where the Secretary of State is, expects to use their call in power um, and where they expect to use it uh, less often. 
Um, and I really think that does provide some reassurance as to where um, parties should and shouldn't consider notifying. Um, the mandatory notification requirements do the bulk of the work in the notifications that we expect to receive under the Act. Um, and then final point is, we expect, but we'll welcome hearing from you and those listening to the podcast, that the Act will be seen as just another matter of compliance mm -hmm. in the near future once parties have seen our fantastic web portal, our crystal clear guidance uh, and the support that the Investment Security Unit is available to provide. That's fantastic, thank you. And I, I must uh, also repeat that um, recommendation that people look at the guidance. I think it is an unusual, um, unusually fulsome and detailed set of guidance that's come out with the Act. And, and I mean, we found actually the ICU uh, extremely helpful in answering actually technical questions and being really responsive on briefing papers. So, so thank you very much for that. And thank you so much for joining us for this podcast, Chris Nandy. You're welcome. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks.